These lectures are based on the scripture series, The Bible and the Church Fathers, prepared by the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. For more information on the St. Paul Center, you can go to their website at www.salvationhistory.com. I dedicate this series to Deacon Vince Trainer, who passed suddenly last December. Vince was a regular participant in these scripture studies and often told me this one on the Church Fathers is the one he was particularly looking forward to attending. I like to think of Vince as now getting to know the Church Fathers firsthand in heaven. And now, the Bible and the Church Fathers, Lesson 5, Mystagogy, Sacraments, and the Fathers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, and the Lord is your So this is Lecture 4, The Fathers of the Church. This week we're going to look at the Church Fathers and the Sacraments and something we call mystagogy, which is the word for the post-baptismal instruction of the faith. Kind of something we're all doing today. We're going to begin this session with something a little different. The use of art by the early Christians to teach the faith. In the catacombs, you'll find some of the church's earliest artistic treasures. And what's fascinating is that so many of these images are typological. We talked about typology in our classes. So a lot of these are typological, like the great flood in Noah's Ark, which the New Testament says is a foreshadowing or a type of or typological of baptism. There are also pictures of the loaves and fishes from John chapter 6, images that foreshadow the Eucharist. Paintings of the priest king of Salem, Melchizedek, and his offering of bread and wine to Abraham in Genesis 14, another foreshadowing of the Eucharist. And in the mosaics that adorn the baptistries and catacombs in the early church, you often see images of the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. So here's an image that is in one of the catacombs, and it's seen as fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says, For the Lord says this, Look, I myself will take care of my flock and look after it, as a shepherd looks after his flock when he is with his scattered sheep. So shall I look after my sheep. I shall raise up one shepherd, my servant David, and put him in charge of them to pasture them. He will pasture them and be their shepherd. And of course that's seen as a prophecy of Jesus, who is the good shepherd, the true shepherd. So the early Christians used art to decorate their worship spaces. There were no printing presses at the time, books were incredibly expensive, and many people were illiterate. The gospel was being spread primarily through preaching, orally. The art that adorned the worship spaces allowed Christians to see what they were hearing. They saw the Old Testament foreshadowing the New and the New Testament fulfilling the Old. These first Christians, however, knew they weren't just looking at pictures. In a sense, they were stepping into these pictures, participating in the story the images told them through their participation in the sacraments, in baptism, and especially in the Eucharist and liturgy of the Mass where we encounter Christ. The Catechism of the Catholic Church declares that the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. The catechism also knows that the liturgy is the 
privileged place for catechizing the people of God because it is the place where Christ affects our transformation. For the early Christians, instruction in the faith was an ordinary and expected part of the liturgy. Many of the quotes we've cited from the fathers came from homilies where the fathers were teaching the faith to their congregations at Mass. Often this teaching focused on the rule of faith, a brief, creed-like summary of their beliefs, like the Nicene and Apostles' Creed we use today. The rule described how God became man, how Jesus was crucified, rose again, and was glorified, and how all those events were foretold and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. That teaching, however, was just a preparation for more teaching. It was preparation for mystagogy, which essentially means the doctrine of the mysteries, that is, the sacraments where we encounter Christ. Specifically, mystagogy refers to the teaching of the mysteries of Christ to newly baptized believers, which generally lasted from Easter to Pentecost, but in another sense continues throughout our, all of our Christian lives. Before Easter and their baptism, they learned salvation history. Then once baptized, the new Christian was guided step by step into the hidden truths of Christ. All the rites and words that they were now experiencing in the sacraments were now explained to them. The biblical preparation of the early Christians received before baptism was important because the mystagogical instructions after baptism were primarily explanations of scripture. The biblical stories, types, and foreshadows that the believers learned in preparation for baptism was now being explained to them as they were being fulfilled in the sacraments that they were now experiencing. At its heart, mystagogy is all about the Old Testament promises and their New Testament fulfillment in sacramental terms. It's an unveiling of their relationship between the Old and the New Testaments in the sacramental rites of the Church, showing their connection through Christ. For example, let's look at the mystagogical connection between Passover and the Eucharist. At the first Passover in Egypt, in order to keep the angel of death from killing their firstborn, the Israelites were required to kill an unblemished lamb, spread its blood over their doorpost, and then eat it. Through mystagogical catechesis, the fathers helped people to see how this sacrificial meal was actually foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. They would point out how Jesus is the true lamb whose blood was shed to deliver them from sin. They would also explain that when we consume his body and drink his blood, we, like the Israelites, are delivered from death, receiving God's own life within us. In all that, the fathers helped the newly baptized Christians see how Jesus connects the Mass we celebrate with the Passover liturgy of the Israelites. The fathers knew that salvation history and all their moral instruction was ultimately ordered to or found their fulfillment in the sacraments. It is in the sacraments that we receive a foretaste of heaven in communion with our Lord. It's also in the sacraments that we receive the grace we need to live a moral life. The sacraments, especially the Eucharist, were and are foundational to our Christian life. That's why St. Irenaeus, Irenaeus stated, our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. Once baptized, new believers needed to learn how to apply the typology they learned as catechumens, and catechumens is a word that refers to those who are preparing for baptism, to the rites they could now celebrate. They needed what the great patristic scholar Enrico Maza called 
the explanation of the mystery hidden in scriptures and celebrated in the liturgy. Many of the church fathers are remembered still today for their mystagogical teachings, for the beauty and clarity with which they unveil the mysteries. Those fathers include St. Ambrose, Cyril, and Theodora, as well as St. John's Chrysostom, Augustine, and Clement of Alexandria, and Justin Mortar, to name a few. Let's take a look at how one of those fathers, Justin Mortar, who provides a classical mystagogical interpretation of the famous prophecy of Malachi. And here someone's going to give us a reading from Malachi, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Oh, that one among you will shut the temple gates to keep you from kindling fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept any sacrifice from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name is great among the nations. And everywhere they bring sacrifice to my name and a pure offering. For great is my name among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So St. Justin declares in the 2nd century that Malachi's prophecy has been fulfilled in the Eucharistic sacrifice. In his famous dialogue with Trypho, the Jew, he says that Malachi speaks of those Gentiles, namely us, who in every place offer sacrifices to him, in the bread of the Eucharist and also the cup of the Eucharist, affirming both that we glorify his name and that you, speaking to the non-Christian, profane it. In other words, Justin illuminates how the promise of the Old Testament comes to the New Testament fulfillment in sacramental terms. In mystagogical interpretations such as that, however, Justin only lifts the veil a little bit. Like St. Paul who told the Corinthians, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Justin, in his dialogue with, with Trypho, doesn't let the non-Christian all the way into the mystery. For the first several hundred years of Christianity, discussions of the sacramental rites were off limits to those who had not yet put on Christ and not yet been baptized. Until the 4th century, the fathers and others fairly consistently observed something we call the discipline of the secret. Like Justin Mortar, men such as Origen, Tertullian, and Clement of Alexandria would reveal something about the sacraments, hint about them, but then pull back saying, we know we can't commit that to writing, or we know we can't say that when the unbaptized are present. Teachings regarding the sacred mysteries could not be heard until a person had been fully initiated into the faith because to fully comprehend the meaning of the sacraments, the Eucharist, in a sense you have to be experiencing it. But with the legalization under Constantine in the 4th century, things changed. The church began to preserve its secret teachings in writings. St. Cyril of Jerusalem told his newly baptized flock in the 4th century, I have long wished, O true and beloved children of the church, to speak to you about these spiritual and heavenly mysteries. But since I knew that seeing is far more persuasive than hearing, I waited until now, now that you are baptized, when your present experience has left you more open to the influence of my words. Now I might lead you by the hand into the brighter and more fragrant meadow of the paradise before us. St. Cyril tells the newly baptized, You were found worthy of divine and life-giving baptism, and now you are ready to receive the more sacred mysteries. Now it's time to set before you a banquet of more perfect instructions. So let us teach you these things exactly, that you may know the effect worked upon you on that evening of your baptism. In other words, 
You've been baptized. You've received. You've had the sacraments. Now I can tell you about them. Now I can explain how the stories of Scripture you learn are connected to the sacramental rites of the Church. Next, St. Cyril guides his newly baptized listeners through the ritual they have just experienced step by step. He leads them from the Old Testament type to its New Testament fulfillment and on into the sacramental mystery of Christ. He says, First you entered into the vestibule of the baptistry. There facing west, you heard the command to stretch forth your hand as if you were in the presence of Satan. You renounced him. Now you must know that this was prefigured in ancient history. For when Pharaoh, that most bitter and cruel tyrant, was oppressing the free and noble Hebrews, God sent Moses to bring them out of the evil bondage of the Egyptians. Then the doorposts were anointed with the blood of the Lamb, that the destroyer might flee from the houses that had the sign of the blood. And the Hebrew people were marvelously delivered. But after their rescue, the enemy pursued them and saw the sea miraculously parted for them. Nevertheless, he, Pharaoh, went on, following close in their footsteps, and was all at once overwhelmed and engulfed by the Red Sea. Cyril then continues by showing the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament stories. Now, turn from the old to the new, from the figure to the reality. There we have Moses sent from God to Egypt. Here we have Christ sent forth from his Father into the world. There, so that Moses might lead forth an afflicted people out of Egypt. Here, so that Christ might rescue those who are oppressed in a world under sin. There, the blood of the Lamb was the spell against the destroyer. Here, the blood of the Lamb, without blemish, Jesus Christ, is made the charm to scare evil spirits. There, the tyrant was pursuing the ancient people all the way to the sea. And here, the daring and shameless spirit, the author of evil, <coughs> follows you even to the streams of salvation. The tyrant of the old was drowned in the sea, and this present one disappears in the waters of salvation, the waters of baptism. So Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea, the devil drowns in baptism. Moses led the Israelites out of salvation through the Red Sea. Christ leads us out of slavery to sin through the waters of baptism. This is the stuff of mystagogy. The old is fulfilled in the new, which leads to a celebration of the mysteries of Christ through the sacraments. Christ connects the events of salvation history to the rites of the church, which lead us into his mysteries. And we're talking about all the sacraments. For example, St. John Chrysostom gives us the mystagogy of the sacrament of marriage. The heart of John's mystagogical view of marriage is the fact that the union between a man and a woman is meant by God to be an image or an icon of the Trinitarian life. Learn the power of type, he says, so that you may learn the strength of the truth. Unlike many of his 4th century contemporaries, who were a bit suspicious of marriage, Chrysostom was bent on glorifying the sacrament. They didn't understand how they could pursue both holiness and a spouse. John did his best to give them that understanding. <clears throat> Using thoroughly mystagogical language, he called it a sacrament, a mystery, a model of the Church of Christ. And of course, his theology of marriage is lifted right out of the pages of the Bible. In the letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul expresses the same truth. And we're going to have a reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. 
and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery. And I mean in reference to Christ and the church. So like Paul before him, St. John Chrysostom is well aware of the fact that marriage is a dominant theme in Scripture. It starts with the union of Adam and Eve, continues through the prophets of the Old Testament, and on to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. In all those biblical examples, marriage is constantly used as a picture or an icon of the relationship of God and his people. What makes marriage a truly sacred mystery, St. John says, is that it leads us into the deeper mystery of the Trinity. So let's take a look at this mystery of the Trinity and how it relates to marriage. Divine Revelation teaches us that the Trinity is essentially a communion of persons. As St. John Paul II stated, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude but a family because he has within himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family which is love. The Father gives himself completely to the Son, the Son gives himself completely to the Father, and from their union proceeds the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The inner life of the Trinity is a life of self-gift. In a similar way, St. John Chrysostom taught his congregation, the husband gives himself completely to the wife, the wife gives herself completely to her husband, and from this union of love, this complete self-donation comes a third person. The child, says Chrysostom, is a bridge connecting mother to father, so the three become one flesh. And here the bridge is formed from the substance of each. Almost 1,700 years later, Pope Benedict XVI echoed Chrysostom when he said, Created in the image of God, the human family thus stands as an icon of the Trinity because of interpersonal love as well as its mission to create life. So these are some examples of the mystagogical teaching, but these teaching only make sense through the eyes of faith. Chrysostom declared that what is performed here requires faith and the eyes of the soul. We are not merely to notice what is seen, but to go from this to imagine what cannot be seen. Such is the power of the eyes of faith, for faith is the capacity to attend to the in invisible as if it were visible. In other words, you can't stand outside the mysteries and hope to understand them. What is happening is so much more than what can be seen with your physical vision. You have to experience and live the mysteries so as to penetrate their true depth. The fathers, however, weren't the first mystagogical teachers. They were following the example of Christ. Christ was the original mystagogue. In Luke chapter 24, we find the famous story of his Easter day encounter with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were talking and wondering about Christ's death and the reports of the empty tomb. Jesus joined them on the road without revealing his identity. Jesus explained to them the truths of salvation history and how all those truths pointed toward him. They were so amazed at his teaching that they asked him to have dinner with them upon reaching Emmaus. And we'll read a little bit about that. Luke chapter 24, verses 30 to 32. And the pastor said, while he was with them at the table, he took bread, set the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. With that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scripture to us? 
So that was no ordinary supper the disciples shared with Jesus. We recognize it as the Mass. And this was the second time Jesus celebrated the Mass. The second time he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. The first time, of course, he did that was at the Last Supper. There, as in Emmaus, Christ was carried in his own hands, as St. Augustine says. So what can we learn about mystagogia from this story? First, that scripture is ordered to the Mass. In the Emmaus story, first the word was proclaimed. Jesus explained how everything was fulfilled. Then Jesus broke the bread, and then their eyes were opened. So scripture is ordered to the Mass. The words of the Bible are proclaimed in the liturgy of the word today, and then actualized in the liturgy of the Eucharist. Also, this story tells us that mystagogy isn't just about teaching. It's the actual movement into the grace of the mysteries of Christ's life. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus while he spoke to them. Rather, the words he spoke prepared them for the celebration of the mystery where the real encounter with Christ occurred. They finally recognized Jesus when their spiritual eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread, the Eucharist. The Catechism says, Mystagogy moves us from the visible to the invisible, from the sign to the thing signified, from the sacraments into the mysteries, in the liturgy of the Mass, where we meet Christ, who is present in both word and sacrament. Again, participation in the mysteries of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is what mystagogy is all about, and what this, this life is ordered to. Christ himself encouraged us to ask our Father for our daily bread. And in a real sense, we're asking for food, but in a much more important sense, we're asking for the spiritual bread of the Word in the Eucharist. St. Ambrose strongly encouraged believers to go to daily Mass. He said, But if it is daily bread, then why do you take it so infrequently? Take daily what will help you daily, and live so that you deserve to receive it daily. He who does not deserve to receive it daily does not deserve to receive it once a year. The reason for Ambrose's and others' insistence upon frequent reception of the sacraments is simple. They are the path to divinization. At their core, the sacraments are about nothing less than making us like God. God became man so that man might become God, declared St. Athanasius. Beginning with baptism, the sacraments join us to the mystical body of Christ in a real way. And we're going to have a reading from the letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 20. Yet I live, no longer I, but Christ lives in me. Insofar as I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who has loved me and given himself up for me. So that's why St. Peter declares that through Christ we can actually become partakers in the divine nature. Now we don't become equal to God, but we are sharers in his divinity. St. Leo the Great declared that the gift surpassing all gifts is that God calls a man his child and that a man calls God his father. St. John the Apostle agrees. And we'll have a reading from John chapter 1, verses 12. But to those who did not accept him, he gave power to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So, through the sacramental mysteries, Jesus really becomes our brother, God really becomes our father, and this is what mystagogical instruction is all about. A candidate for baptism had to be prepared to receive this great mystery. 
In the 4th century, St. Basil the Great declared that what is set before us is, as far as humanly possible, to be made like God. Without knowledge, though, we cannot be made like him, and knowledge cannot be achieved without lessons. So the fathers understood that one of the keys to this knowledge was the interrelationship of the Old and the New Testaments. In our previous discussions about typology, we quoted a line from, from Augustine. The New Testament is concealed in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. St. Augustine also clearly understood there is a unity not just between the two Testaments, but also between the Bible and the sacraments. And this relationship is central to Christianity. Misunderstanding this relationship is at the heart of some of the most popular heresies in the early church that St. Augustine was tasked with combating. So let's look at three of those heresies with which St. Augustine and the rest of the church dealt. Manichaeism, Pelagianism, and Donatism. Now the common denominator in all three of these false teachings involved confused understanding of the sacraments. The Manichaeans were of particular interest to St. Augustine because he had actually been one of them for about ten years before returning to the church. The problem with the Manichaeans was that they had an issue with physical matter. They said it was impossible for the sacraments to work the way the church taught because physical matter is corrupt. All creation was evil to the Manichaeans, especially the human body. Augustine, however, refuted them using the Genesis creation account where God declares his creation very good. He also pointed to the Incarnation. He reasoned that if the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh, then it can't be totally corrupt. He also pointed out that Jesus himself took material things like bread and wine, using these earthly realities as conveyors of divine life. Augustine emphasized the goodness of creation and the sacraments that were left to us by Christ himself. He explained, Through the bread and the chalice, the Lord wished to leave us his body and the blood that he poured out for the remission of sins. If you receive well, you are what you have received. The second heresy dealt with, Saint, dealt with, dealt with by St. Augustine was Pelagianism. Pelagius, a monk from the British Isles, said the sacraments were only necessary for the weak, for those not strong enough to achieve holiness on their own. In other words, Pelagians believed everyone should be able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. As with the Manichaeans, Augustine used the scriptures to help the Pelagians see the necessity of sacramental grace. Quoting 1 Corinthians 4.7, he asked Pelagius, For what have you that you have not received? In other words, you can't do it alone. You need the sacraments. Turning to John 15.5, he inquires of them, Do you not hear Jesus when he says, Without me you can do nothing? So first against the Manichaeans, Augustine argued from the scriptures for the goodness of the sacraments. Against the Pelagians, he argued for the necessity of the sacraments. Then against the Donatists, another heresy, he argued for the effectiveness of the sacraments. The Donatists were rigorists who insisted that Christians who had capitulated to persecution and became traitors, traitors to the faith, could never be reconciled to the church. They even said that tainted priests could no longer administer the sacraments validly. Augustine argued that the validity of sacraments did not depend on the goodness of the minister. He insisted that it all depended on Christ. It was against the Donatists that Augustine composed the line that we read in the last session. When John baptizes, 
it is Christ who baptizes. When Peter baptizes, it is Christ who baptizes. When Judas baptizes, it is Christ who baptizes. It's obvious to see that both for Augustine and for the fathers in general, the sacraments were all about Christ. Through their grace, something real happens to us. We are actually transformed into our Lord. Augustine declared, Let us rejoice and give thanks. We have not only become Christians, but Christ himself. Stand in awe and rejoice. We have become Christ. The sacraments move us into the very mysteries of Christ. As St. Athanasius said, God became man so that man might become God. That is our goal. That is our created destiny. So next week, in our final session, uh, we're going to learn uh, more about the early martyrs of the faith and what their example can mean to us. And we'll see that it is because of the sacraments define who they were, the sacraments also define how they lived. Would you give us a final blessing, Father? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to study the great revelation that you have given us through the church in our lives. We ask you to open our hearts and our minds to understand, to deepen our relationship with you, and to be inspired to follow you more closely in all that we say and all that we do. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father.